I mean, I got a reasonable amount of credibility with you guys out there, don't I? I mean, I have steadfastly resisted conspiracy theories, as they're called. And I've done a pretty good job of pushing back against this kind of stuff. But I got to tell you, there's some stuff in this paddock shooting, the Las Vegas shooting, that is just too weird for me. So let me give you some examples here. So the Las Vegas shooter's laptop is missing its hard drive. So they recovered a laptop computer from the hotel room where Stephen Paddock launched this mass shooting. But they found that the laptop computer was missing its hard drive. And according to, this is ABC News, they say Paddock is believed to have removed the hard drive before fatally shooting himself. And the missing device has not yet been recovered. Okay, a couple of logical problems there for me. First of all, how on earth would you know when Paddock removed the hard drive? There's no way that I can imagine that you can tell, whether it was a day before, the night before, two weeks before. So if the hard drive was removed, then there's no reason to bring the laptop because the laptop can't work without the hard drive. I guess you could boot Linux from a USB key, but that seems pretty unlikely. So the laptop has to have been there with the hard drive. Otherwise, there's no point bringing the laptop. And this was a meticulous guy. He planned this for months. He's not just going to leave some old laptop in there with no hard drive. I mean, if you take the hard drive out, there's no point bringing the laptop anywhere. If you're going to bring it to be repaired, then you bring it with the laptop hard drive so they can repair the hard drive. So this idea that he had a laptop with no hard drive in his room, but that he somehow brought it with him, what, booted it up, read something, did something. I mean, he already had his calculations, according to the police, written down on a piece of paper. So why would he need to boot up a laptop? What would he need it to be there for? So the idea to me that he brought a laptop with no hard drive and then somehow disposed of it, he threw it out the window. Well, a laptop uh, hard drive is pretty hard to destroy. At least you'd find the bits and pieces. So, and why? Why would he bother? Why would he bother? Just... Um, it doesn't make any sense to me. So what is a far more likely explanation, in my opinion, is that the laptop was not missing its hard drive, but somewhere between the shooting and now the laptop hard drive is in the wind. It's gone missing. So the idea that it was just missing when they found it, I guess if they lost it, that's kind of what they'd say. And there's been so much incompetence around this area that nothing would surprise me at this point. So my, the first place I would look is look at the chain of custody, look at see who had the hard drive and when it might have gone missing. Because remember, one of his homes, one of Stephen Paddock's homes, was broken into by someone after the shooting. What were they looking for? Were they depositing? Were they removing? So this idea that he had some non-workable hard drive, uh, non-workable laptop, no hard drive with him, and then somewhere between the shooting and now, there's no hard drive in the laptop. But they know for sure he removed it before he started the shooting. They don't. They don't at all. So this is, to me, just another really, really hinky cover story that, <laughs> I guess, to the gullible makes things look more sensible. But to any kind of thinking person, it just makes much, it makes much worse. So that's one thing. Now, I talked about the family history and what had gone on in this family with rela uh, related to the father who was a psychopath and a sociopath and a bank robber and a con man and so on. 
and talked about how vicious it was and how ugly and nasty it was and that the father left the mom. Mother Paddock was left, I guess, the psychopathic on the FBI most wanted list bank robber found her to be unpleasant. And so this to me is fact tells you a lot about the mom that she had no problem being with a bank robber as long as he was bringing her the money. But he left. And that means that he found her unbearable. She didn't leave him because she's like, oh, Lord, you're robbing banks. Well, that's just plain wrong. I can't take a dime of that tainted money right now. So this tells you, tells me at least everything I need to know about the mom and what has just happened now. And this isn't the brother that you have uh, heard about, right? This isn't the brother that uh, gave all of those uh, interviews on his uh, driveway. This is another brother. So the first thing, so Bruce Paddock, his name is. And Bruce Paddock, according to legal documents, threatened to kill a friend and not, I'm going to kill you, but, you know, apparently quite seriously. So he was a squatter in a San Fernando Valley home in 2014. He was in a feud with a guy named Hector Cruz, who was the property owner. So according to these legal documents, uh, Bruce Paddock had been tampering with the equipment, tampering with the machinery, and the renter of the property complained to the property owner. And so Cruz went and confronted Bruce Paddock, brother of the shooter. And according to these documents, uh, Bruce clenched his fist and said, if you keep effing with me, I'm going to kill you and drop you in the desert. And there's another incident. This is again alleged. Bruce approached Cruz and said, hit me like a man. And then Bruce punched him hard in the arm. And in the legal documents, Cruz wrote, quote, I'm extremely afraid of Paddock, who has intimidated me by his violent character and destruction of my business office and my service bay. Cruz said that Bruce, uh, Bruce was a habitual drug user and seller who used meth and weed. Good job, Joe. And his behavior is, quote, extremely erratic and unpredictable. And so Cruz asked for a temporary restraining order against Bruce Paddock and the judge granted it. Now, again, I've talked about this many times before. I don't want to take away agency or, or, or free will from people, but uh, drug abuse is very often associated with child abuse, with having been abused, neglected, uh, raped, uh, beaten up, screamed at, insulted, and so on as a child. And so the fact that this guy who had um, a father who was psychopathic bank robber and who knows what else and a mother who decided to marry and have a bunch of kids with this guy and was fine with him and then he ended up leaving that this guy had a wretched and horrible childhood is to me beyond the shadow of a doubt and it was inflicted by his father and either inflicted or enabled by his mother and say well the father was gone when he was young or whatever but father absence is another issue neglect uh, is worse in many ways than outright abuse, which is why children will often provoke parents into abusing them rather than to be neglected. Because if you are the victim of child abuse, at least you serve some purpose to abuser, which is a container for their violent and poisonous rages and impulses and so on. And so the fact that he ended up becoming this violent drug addicted person and the fact that the other brother is um, an unbelievably evil and vicious mass murderer, uh, let's see, that is uh, I guess that's two, and um, the other brother, this again, is uh, the same, sorry, the same guy, not the guy who's been doing the 
the interviews. Uh, so Bruce uh, Paddock uh, has uh, just been arrested in North Hollywood at an assisted living home. So law enforcement sources have reported that cops were tipped that there was child porn on Bruce Paddock's computer. They got a search warrant and some people say the investigation began before his brother Stephen shot up the music festival, but um, there's no confirmation of that. So before the shooting, cops were trying to find this guy, didn't have much luck, I guess he was kind of off the grid. But uh, after Stephen Paddock shot up the music festival, a tip came in that Bruce was at an assisted living facility and they found child porn images on his computer. And that is some pretty uh, ugly and nasty stuff as well, of course. And this again, to me, I'm not taking agency and I want to pretend that there's no free will, but again, why would you... Why would you have anything to do with child pornography if you yourself had not been raped or abused sexually or molested or sexually assaulted as a child? You know, early sexual experiences, whether moral or in this case, immoral to the extreme, they leave an imprinting upon one's sexuality. There's a reason why various sexual practices are practiced in different cultures very easily because we are an imprinting sexual species. What we see uh, first is something that imprints itself, I believe, upon our sexuality. So um, maybe it's obviously not 100%, but the first place I would look if somebody has child pornography is to look at their own childhood experiences with uh, sexual abuse, with rape, molestation, sexual assault, you name it. So where did this come from? This, did, if, if it did happen, did it come from the father? Did it come from the mother? Did it come from other male relatives? Did it come from the mother's boyfriends, right? This is another huge issue with fatherless homes. Fatherless homes are incredibly dangerous for children uh, because if there's another non-related male in the house, like the mother's boyfriend or something like that, then children are over 30 times, 30 times, not 30%, 30 times more likely to be abused by that. There's just not that blood bond. Like, you know what happens in lion prides, right? I mean, the, the females hunt, the males guard the perimeter from other male lions and when male lions take over a tribe uh, they kill the young because genetically you want to ruin so you, the idea that you have the same kind of bond with children who aren't yours genetically or you know if adopted didn't raise them from beginning and choose to have them uh, it's just not how it works so when you have a single mother environment for children it is incredibly dangerous for those children and so if you are a sexual predator if you do want to abuse children, uh, either you know verbally, physically, sexually, and so on, you're very keen on single motherhood because single motherhood lets the guard down, right? The the lion, the male lion, the alpha lion, the, the the leader of the pack, so to speak, is out of the picture, and therefore his offspring are going to be easy picking. So if you are uh, a child abuser, child molester, if you have evil intent towards children, then you will be a very very big fan of the single mother welfare state because it is where you're pickings are going to come from. So very strange stuff in all of this. I mean, I know that there have been shooters, of course, before who have covered their tracks digitally and so on. But they say, I mean, I've read these reports that say he never left anything behind. He, he never left anything. We don't know what his motive was. We don't know why he did it. But... Um, I'll say two things about that. 
one is conjecture, the other is a lot of conjecture, but I think they're valuable and useful, and I appreciate your indulgence in this. So first of all, when they say he didn't leave anything behind, they don't even know where that hard drive went. So the idea he didn't leave anything behind when they have found a laptop with no hard drive in it, which would make no sense to bring with you. It's like having a getaway car parked outside with no gas in it. It it makes no sense to bring an empty laptop, no hard drive laptop. So they say, well, he didn't leave anything behind. Who knows? Who knows what was on that? Who knows where it is? Who knows where the chain of custody may have broken down? And also, given that one of his houses was burgled, was, was broken into, and stuff may have been stolen from or planted, the idea that they don't know, well, of course the reality is now, Either these things are genuinely lost, like the hard drive, or maybe no one stole anything, but that seems unlikely. Why bother breaking into some place you don't have to steal anything? So either he had no explicable motive, like he'll never, you'll never know because he never wrote it down, or he wrote it down and someone's taken it or it's just been lost. Now, either way, I mean, I'm sorry, but now as the weeks pass, you know what it's like. You know, if, if you can get... Um, data information and and follow up very quickly, then you have a much greater chance of solving a crime. Uh, As time passes, the odds of solving things goes down enormously. So one of a couple of things has happened. Either he had no motive that we'll ever know explicitly, or he had a motive, and either he destroyed that motive or it's being buried, stolen, covered up in some way. Now, this is not unprecedented. A couple of years ago, I did a show on this. A guy shot up some newspaper reporters. He was a black guy, and he left a manifesto, which never saw the light of day, right? You can see Dylan Roof's manifesto because that falls into the evil white supremacist narrative. But if there was a black supremacist who shot white people for racial, then you won't find out that that was repressed, that was suppressed, that will never see the light of day, certainly not in any reasonable time frame, and now it's been enough time. So if something doesn't fit the narrative, then it gets pushed out. Like when George Zimmerman was assaulted by Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman shot Trayvon Martin in self-defense, of course, the picture that was portrayed was the artificially um, uh, lightened uh, George Zimmerman and then the 12 pictures of like the 12-year-old goofy-looking Trayvon Martin, the pictures of him as, you know, a, a surly, rather large teenager smoking drugs and, and making, you know, these alleged gang signs and all of that. Well, they, they weren't shown because they weren't part of the narrative. So either he genuinely didn't leave anything behind or he left something behind, but it's being buried because it doesn't suit a particular narrative at the moment. And speculation about that motive, as far as it may be political or whatever, that... Um, that doesn't doesn't really help. Now, having just said that speculation doesn't really help regarding an explicit motive, I will say what a potential motive could be behind what he did. And it ties in a lot to what I've been doing low these 12 years on this show. So if you have been the victim of severe child abuse, then in most cases, you were the victim of extreme child abuse in the midst of a community, in the midst of society. Uh, 
there were people all around you on the street, maybe in an apartment buildings nearby, who <clears throat> heard the abuse, who heard the screams, who heard the violence, who whatever, right? Or there were teachers, or there were priests, or there were camp counselors, or people who had have had some idea about the violence or abuse or whatever that was that was happening. Now, if you grow up with extreme child abuse, your relationship to society is very difficult. Because not only did people not act to do anything to ameliorate the child abuse that you experienced as a child, which means that you have a lot of hatred in your heart for those around you. Like it's one thing, <clears throat> to use an analogy, it's one thing to be taken down by a man-eating lion when you're in the midst of the Serengeti and there's no one around. That's terrible and a tragedy for you and for your family and your friends, but at least there was no one there who could intervene. But if you're stalked and taken down at a mall or while standing in a bus stop and everyone just puts their heads deeper into their tablets and pretends to take a phone call and suddenly finds their watch very interesting and looks up at the cloud and tries to figure out what shape it is, while the lion is like mauling and pulling out your innards, you understand that people standing around while you get mauled as a child, people ignoring it, people downplaying it, people minimizing it, people pretending that nothing of the kind ever happened, it creates a lot of anger. It creates a lot of anger <clears throat> and a lot of contempt towards society as a whole. Especially when society says, oh, we care about the kids, and we're such a good society, we care about the poor, we care about the sick, we care about the homeless, we're just, we're, we're so tender-hearted, we care, we care, we care. When, of course, you get severely abused as a child, who lifts a finger to help you? Who lifts a finger to acknowledge it? Who lifts a finger to do anything? But then you see all of these contortions of self-congratulatory moral posturing and virtue signaling, it creates a lot of rage. That's as a child, now as you grow up, you have this history of, of child abuse and for people to know you, they have to know that history. It's not all you are, but it's part of who you are and it's a big part of who you are. You know, first impressions in this world, in this life count for a lot. So when you grow up, when you try to get close to people, the question or the topic of child abuse, of having been abused as a child, of a sort of foundational base of the pyramid, essence of your origins no one can really know you if they don't know about your child abuse so the question is either you hide yourself and you don't talk about your childhood or you pretend it was something other than what it was in which case you are denied intimacy and you are denied connection and the isolation that occurred for you as a child then continues because you have this mode of silence around you the whole time. You don't talk about it. You you don't refer to it. You you pretend you have to lie and falsify and fake and pretend. In other words, your child abuse, the isolation of your child abuse environment never ends. The brutalities that were inflicted upon you as a child surround you like a ring of fire that no one can see, but everyone shies away from and averts their eyes from. And people won't ask you about it. They won't refer to you about it. They won't talk about it. And they collude in your avoidance. And the reason you avoid is not because you're ashamed of your history. The reason that you avoid the topic is because you're terrified of the coldness with which it will be received. So if you, as an adult, if you talk about having been abused as a child, and people get uncomfortable, they change the subject, they say, oh, that's terrible, and then it vanishes, and they never talk about it again, and they kind of avoid you, and right? 
then the demonic hellishness of your environment becomes clear to you. And then the collusion between those around you and your direct abusers becomes very clear. You know, when people pound children, they abuse children, they beat children. When they rape children, molest children, they are relying on the silence and complicity and collusion of everyone around them. Right? If you pound on a child, the child's screaming, and people can hear the screams, the abuser who's pounding on that child is, you understand, is damn well relying on the surrounding bipeds to do nothing and say nothing. It could not happen without that collusion. And now you say, well, if, if the child is raped, if the child is molested, that's silent, dark, but yes, that's true, often. But the person who rapes the child, the child molester, relies on specifically the fact that the child does not have close enough connections with authority figures to feel safe and secure enough to tell. In other words, it relies on the general discomfort that society has regarding personal histories of child abuse. The abusers rely on that general discomfort in order to continue their predations. So, if we understand this, right, the, the, the child abuse, boom, it lands like an obelisk in the lake of life, but the ripples spread and reverberate throughout life. If you have to hide your true self from people around you because you're afraid of being further rejected as you were as a child by your tales and history of being abused by your victimhood. If you have to hide yourself from everyone and you have to falsify your history, your existence, your entire being, then why would people have interest in you? Well, you then have to make up for your lack of honesty, your lack of openness, your lack of truth by maybe being pretty or maybe being rich and buying people things. But you hate your abusers deep down in your heart. But you also hate society as well if you haven't processed all of this stuff. If you haven't done the therapy, if you haven't achieved the self-knowledge, if you don't have people in your life you can honestly talk to about these things. You hate society because you view society as a whole as everyone who colluded with your child abusers, both in the past and in the present. Because when you try and talk about your history of child abuse, people... They shy away, they're uncomfortable, they don't want to talk about it. They, they scream at you as silently as humanly possible to shut up, to shut up and say nothing. Omerita, code of silence about a history of victimization. That's what they do. So maybe, this is not proven, you understand. This is just a potential hypothesis which may stand as a thought provoker in the absence of material facts and empirical data. Maybe, just maybe, Stephen Paddock stood in the window of the hotel in Mandalay Bay, the Mandalay Bay Hotel, and fired his bullets into a happy crowd because he felt in his heart the extraordinary collusion between general society and the abuse of children, and it justifies nothing of what he did, but I hope it explains why I talk about it, and you should listen.